Okay, so this is an interesting one. We are going to recap the entire season. Yes, this is the last episode of the season. I tell you, I'm coming back at the end of the summer with a uh, really upgraded show. Maybe it'll have much better audio than it did at the beginning of the season. You're going to hear the audio improve throughout these episodes uh, that you're going to hear. And uh, maybe, you know... um, difference in topics still gonna talk about language and race of course that's what i do but maybe we'll broaden it a little bit and maybe some some guests who are really interesting i think that some of the episodes at the end of the season really showed what was possible with this show and i'd like to see if i can pull off really strong episodes every time and none of the ones that i'm saying aren't as strong are because of the guests every single thing that i have done you know i've been experimenting here and Every single thing here that has been subpar has either been because I did something wrong or because I was lazy or I didn't spend any money or whatever. So, because I, I really want this to become a place that people can come to, to uh, learn, to laugh a little bit, and to take an interest in the topic that they find, you know, a little bit more accessible than they might in the academic literature. That's why I don't really try to cite that much. Uh, I don't mean that I'm pulling a lot of facts out, but I mean, I just having a conversation and telling stories here. Um, And so I want people who are a little bit nerdy like me, but also uh, interested in engaging with the public to find a place here. So what we're going to do in this episode is we're going to go all the way back to the first episode, up through every single episode, and you're going to hear a little bit of it. And then you can go ahead and listen to a snippet from it. And go back and listen to the original episode if you find it interesting. All right. All right, so this is the first episode, the pilot, and I'm talking to my good friend who was helpful enough to jump on the phone with me that first day, Rob Shepard. We're talking about expats. What do we think expats are? And in this part, he's giving his opinion, his image of what he thinks of when he hears the word expat, and I'm responding with mine. Each of these clips are only about a minute or two minutes long, by the way. So to to expat, um, I guess I felt the need to say that because my first instinct about what expat conjures in my head is problematic. it's, I mean, literally, obviously, it's a person who lives outside their country, um, but it's very distinctly, I think, for most people, Western people in Eastern places, very often white people in colonized places. Um, I, 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 this this image kind of like pre, pre-exists my consciousness of things like this, but I have an image of like, old like Humphrey Bogart people in dusty hotels. Um, I'm sure part of this is colored by like Casablanca, um, but in, I don't know, Mandalay and and in like a hill station in India or something like that. So it's really connected with colonialism in my, in my mind. Yeah, I, um, there's my own experience. There's images I get from movies, old movies, especially um, even newer movies like, uh, anything like a Euro trip or something like that. Mm. But um, I also think like the worst things about expats 
um, where, you know, when I was in Vietnam, it was just sort of what was going on. I kept meeting all these older American and British men who were just there looking for quote unquote legal young girls. And I'm just like, that's just what was happening. And, uh, to me, like, I, I think, you know, maybe I'm just a cynic, but I think that a lot of the time when I think of expats, even though romantically I want to think, you know, e- e- even the colonial thing, which is really messed up in its own way, is still an even more romantic version of what's probably actually going on from day to day. All right, so this is the second episode, and this is with Lydia Villaronga, and we're talking about acronyms. Um, the acronyms that we should use in talking about the field of ELT, ESL, ELL, and all these other things. And, however, in this moment, we're really just talking about a story that she's experienced, and uh, you should listen to what she has to say, because it's really important for us to consider the ways in which people will judge people based on the way that they use the language. of something that I saw some, I, I should never read the comments never read the comments it's yeah. always a bad move but I was reading the comments one day on a Coursera course and you think it might be better but you would think right because you would think the users on Coursera have some degree of critical thinking that they're going to employ before they you just Start, think they wouldn't just, be incurious because you're doing something that connotes curiosity. So what what blew I, I wish that I had taken a screenshot because I can't even remember that the the institution that was putting the online mm-hmm. course material out there, but it was you know, in broad strokes, it was definitely a top tier university. And the presenter did not have an American accent. And I remember seeing a comment from someone who I read as a white woman saying, you would think that they could find someone who could at least speak English clearly to give us this course material. And it blew my mind that her commentary was not about the substance of the course that was being presented, but but rather some attack on the way that he spoke in the language that she presumably understood. And her critique was not, I couldn't follow this, I didn't know what he was saying. It was literally, you don't speak English the way that I want you to. This third episode is uh, my first interview with Dr. Vijay Ramjitan, and we're talking about accents. Um, And he's got a lot of interesting things to say about accents and what accents are and the fact that we all have an accent, whether or not we actually think that we do. So take a listen. Yes, I think it goes once uh, once again, it goes back to like your, your personal experience. So like, if you travel a lot or you lived in a different country for a while, right, it's, it's natural for your accent to change, right? And so accents are malleable, right? They're not these things frozen in time. Um, yes, I, 
Um, even like with um, uh, maybe uh, so-called non-native speakers of English, if they move to a country like Canada, right, uh, from a young age and they grew up here, right, they, they might eventually even sound like quote-unquote native because they spent so much time, right, in the country. So I think it has to do uh, with your environment and that can really, that can change your accent more or less, right? It depends on the person uh, once again, but. I know yeah. that. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, no. Go ahead, yeah. Um, I know plenty of people who, you know, they were born in the UK and they moved to the United States and they sound very differently than they did when they were children because of the experiences they had. But on the other hand, I know people who grew up, who not grew up, but who were born in the UK and lived there for a few years, and they speak much more similarly to um, to the way they did when they were children. So then the question I have following that is, is there, are there, you know, are there studies or is there um, evidence or data that uh, you get more of an influence on your accent from your external surroundings, like outside of your home, or is it often cl more closely tied to your home surroundings? Yeah, that's a good question. So this fourth episode was the first time that I didn't have an episode ready, so I recorded one myself. And this one, I just sort of went through a little autobiography of myself as a, you know, my conceptualization of being black and, and, and smart and what that meant. And what's interesting about it is that I think that I would change some of it now. I mean, this is only September, but I've got a, a greater understanding of myself than I do than I did at the time. But I still think it's an interesting episode. And um, here is a clip from it. I got to Princeton and, you know, uh, this was sort of uncomfortable for me. I got to the activities fair, fall 2003, and there's all these groups, black groups, and they were all really friendly to me, and I did not sign up for any of them. I can't tell you what I was really feeling consciously other than a vague discomfort, but what I would say is that I didn't want to be defined by my blackness, uh, and I realized a couple of years later while I was still in college that you can choose to define yourself or not define yourself by your blackness, but the world, the United States, is going to define you by your blackness. That may not be the only way they define you. They define you by your, your class. They define you by your gender. They define you by all of these things. But you can't just walk out into the world in the United States and put on a Princeton sweatshirt and then they forget that there's a black face there, right? So uh, I was trying and failing to just sort of be like my white classmates, which I had done easily for 14 years because I had known them since I was a child. I didn't really have to try. But in Princeton, it was like, now, you know, if you, if you didn't go to a school like that, and I don't mean good, I just mean like that, uh, it's not all like scions of the Rockefeller family. Oh, there was literally one of those in my class. Uh, there's a lot of people who have a lot of money, but they, they still live in the dorms, right? Like, like you, you can have all the money in the world. Princeton will tell you you will be in the dorms. That doesn't mean that they're an egalitarian place. Just that you are, people are teenagers. 
You're rubbing shoulders with uh, these people. And mostly they're 17, 18, 19-year-old kids who just want to get drunk and, and or, you know, whatever people do at that age. They're not that different at that point within that bubble. And I did not have the confidence to really stake myself out as my own identity, like most 17-year-olds. But let's be clear, I was 17 when I got to college. And I'm not going to spend too much time on college, but uh, that discrepancy between being black and being smart or being, or the uh, impression I got that I would not be seen as exceptional in a good way if I identified as, as black uh, was really something that I regret. So this is episode five, and this is one of my favorite ones in concept, but not in execution. This is with Parisa Moran, Dr. Parisa Moran, who teaches in Japan. Uh, she is Iranian. And this conversation was about native speakers and native speakerism, and she used it to talk about her own experience being a quote-unquote non-native speaker in Japan. So she teaches English in Japan, but is obviously from a country where the first language is not usually English. We talked about why it's problematic um, and what we should call it instead. Uh, you should listen to the episode, but I will warn you, this is the one with the worst audio. Why is the audio so bad? Well, at the beginning, I was recording from my phone, which you're already thinking, this is stupid. Well, I was because I didn't know any better and I didn't realize I could use what I started using by the end of the year. Anyway, when you record on your phone, um, I had dropped my phone the previous summer and it meant that I had to use a recording system that did not, like that would, like, you know, when your phone um, does this thing, where it, uh, you know, the the display shuts off, right? Well, this recording system didn't work when the display shut off. So I had to keep look like t touching the phone to keep the recording system working. And every time that it, you know, the display went off, which would happen every so often, it would stop recording. So there's these big gaps in the recording, um, which means that when you listen to the episode, I jump in every so often to explain what she says in the rest of the recording, which is terrible. Um, and then there's the problem of the fact that I was recording it on my phone in the gym. There's a gym in my building and the gym in my building is, I thought it would be very quiet. The problem with the gym is that there is an air conditioner. And when you live in New York city, you sometimes forget that there are sounds in the background. So if you listen to this episode, um, she is very quiet. So I had to turn up the volume so you could hear her and then it sounds like she's inside of an airplane because you can hear the air conditioner at all times. Sorry about that, but you should still listen to it. They give you the job because you sound uh, like a native speaker, uh, which means you sound like a white person, um, probably because you don't have accents. This is what they say, and we all know that we all have accents. So um, my point is that, well, um, your recruiters, um, uh, you know, are looking for um, another, <laughs> uh, I don't know, kind of teacher. So that's why um, I don't apply. I don't, and I don't want want to work uh, uh, in 
that kind of um, towards life. Uh, but the thing is, uh, uh, the jobs that I found here in Japan, I found all of the, all of them through my connections. And the problem here in Japan is that a lot of these positions are not advertised. So honestly, I don't know if they <laughs> if they want to um, advertise these positions. Um, do they use um, the word native speakers or not? I really don't know. Um, uh, but most probably they don't, at least um, at one of the um, universities that I teach. Uh, and it's because I see other um, so-called and labeled non-native teachers uh, there. So um, that's why, yeah, I really tried hard to find those uh, workplaces that are open to um, different kinds of teachers from different backgrounds, linguistic backgrounds, um, different nationalities. Um, so yeah, that's my point. And um, this is something that I see a lot. Um, uh, we as uh, labeled non-native teachers are encouraged to apply uh, to apply for those um, job ads, but no, I don't recommend it. Uh, honestly, no, I don't. <laughs> All right, this is the next time that I had one by myself. Um, this one's about rap music because I realized as a person who grew up with a certain amount of class privilege, and I wasn't super wealthy or anything, but I went to private schools, predominantly white schools, as you heard in the other episode about me, um, people couldn't really make fun of me for being poor because it wasn't true. And poorness is what people tended to associate with blackness. However, one way that they could tell me that they hated blackness was to tell me how much they hated rap music. Not everything about rap music is black, and not every black person likes rap music. But to racists, mm -hmm. even without mentioning rap music, they will tell you how much they hate rap music. This is happening many times in my life, and it's one of the ways in retrospect that in looking back, I realized that people were expressing their racism towards me without actually saying so. And they would deny it and just say that they didn't like the music. Um, so this is under an exploration. Now, this is when I was playing around with music in the background of these episodes, and I realized that it doesn't help anything. But in this one, you're going to hear this weird music in the background forever. It's odd. I don't know. <laughs> the point is that, like, it is not, well, you know, maybe until Trump, it was not socially acceptable to be really, really angry about black people's existence. Uh, for a while in the 90s and the early 2000s like that was not socially acceptable at least in New York where I was but it was very socially acceptable to be really angry at rap music and to, to put all of your latent anger about black culture into the way you spoke about rap music so I don't think people have to like it but if you don't like it, I think you should unpack that and ask yourself why you don't like the entire genre. Again, not just certain artists, but the entire genre. And I would also ask you, do you really hate it? Do you really hate it? Because what's a big genre now? Country rap. Country rap is terrible, generally. Because it's not they, they're not using the rap well. Right? They're just not mashing it up well. There are obviously ways, because country and rap, because there are plenty of country artists who are black. 
and there are rappers who are not black. These things can be matched up well, but the way they do it is just so lazy and just clearly cash grabby. They just take the rap flow, and it's a terrible flow, and they just put a little twang and a guitar under it. Uh, basically, if you ever play Body Like a Back Road in front of me, I will walk to the other end of the island. I don't care if it is Manhattan Island. I will get very far. I just, I cannot with these songs. But the point is, it's just so cynical and it's just so lazy. And the problem isn't the countryness. The problem is the lazy. All right. And here's one of my most listened to episodes. In fact, depending on which day of the week, because it fluctuates, this may still actually be my most listened to episode. It is an quote-unquote accurate conversation about fluency with Scott Stiller. And we talk about the construction of fluency and how it's often used to discriminate. You all think that saying I'm fluent in something is a perfectly neutral thing to say, but it's not. I mean, this is kind of the point of the show where we're going to look at words that are um, used to discriminate. I've gotten a little bit away from that because that's how shows evolve, but ultimately... That's what the show is about. This is the essence of the show, and it's an interesting conversation. come in and be like relax like just 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 you know be, say, say as much as you can <laughs> and then they would yeah, say stuff and, and then things would be fine and then the people who were the auditors would come in and said they all did so well on this exam i'm like yeah well <laughs> but you know because <laughs> that's what but you know you have people who if you if you give them a situation where they're comfortable they will say whatever, and if you make yeah. them uncomfortable, they will say nothing, and then somehow it's supposed to determine how much money your program gets. That's why that's the problem. It's like if it, if it's just a test and they made up the test and it's bad, then whatever. But it's tied to the money. Um, yeah. And so yeah. Exactly. I, uh, I think that's a. Uh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh no, sorry. Uh, no, I, I think that uh, again, that a lot of this comes back to just how we were trained to, to analyze this notion of uh, 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 fluency. You know, and uh, like within educational spaces, um, there's um, I, for reading. There's three, uh, there's three uh, traditional, uh, at least in, in the. In the literature that I'm familiar with, anyway, there's three traditional measures of fluency for reading, and then two, two for for speaking. The, uh, the accuracy, uh, and then one's called uh, automaticity, and then prosody. Um, prosody, and, and it's funny, right? This word prosody. How do you pronounce that word? I don't know. I, I, I mean, I've, I, I, know, I know how to spell it, but I, I don't, I've never heard it said out loud. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so maybe you know, maybe I'm not fluent, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> Oh man, this is, I mean, this is my presentation. Um, episode eight is my presentation from the New York State TESOL conference in November of 2019. Um, I was going to present this again in November 2020, but uh, 
COVID. So um, I am going to present it, but I'm going to present it online. However, you get to hear the entire presentation in its unabridged form. If you want to go hear the whole thing, go back to episode eight called The Altruistic Shield Live. And it's my whole concept of the altruistic shield, which um, in short is basically the idea that people do things that they think are altruistic, including teaching racialized learners of racialized uh, English learners. And it think it makes them a better person. And in being what they consider to be a better person, they consider themselves exempt or like they, oh, they cannot possibly be racist. So they don't really try not to be racist or more accurately, they don't try to be anti-racist. And I honestly think in the time that I've spent since then, and it's been six months now, this is really, whether it's the altruistic shield or something else, this idea of, of altruism is a really big theme of my work because I spend a lot of time with white teachers who think they're saving the world and they ain't doing shit, man. <laughs> everybody can do and broadly they are challenge your context and change your consumption what do I mean by those things all right so challenging your context wherever I know it's a lot of words it's okay Uh, wherever you work or study or live but I'm talking about the field so uh, there's racism there there's systemic racism there because that's what systemic means, right? As critical race theorists would tell you, racism is ordinary and it's pervasive, right? You can't just like, oh, I'll just go over here and the racism won't be there. It's not, it doesn't work that way, especially not in the United States. Uh, if you think about your context, whether it's your school, as in where you teach or where you study or both, not sure what, you, what your daily life is like, there will be some kind of pattern, right? Some kind of policy or practice no matter how outwardly committed, or if they put that little thing at the bottom of their job ads about equity and all that, uh, your context claims to be. And if you think about it, there is some question that you can ask. Maybe you aren't in charge. Probably you're not in charge. But even if you're not, there is someone that you can ask a question to, right? You can lower the shield, as I mean conceptually, and just question some of the patterns that have led to whatever issue you're speaking about. Now, there is no guarantee this will change the patterns if you choose to ask questions. But there is a guarantee that they will not change if you don't ask the questions. So I'm really just saying ask the questions. I'm not expecting you to come up with any solutions. I'm go- I'll send it to you. You can take the whole thing. You don't have to try to do that. All right, and then changing your consumption. So I don't know what you spend your time reading. Who's writing it? You know? Do they offer alternative perspectives, or are they reifying and replicating the extant dialogue? Who's in their bibliography, right? I'm not saying don't read white authors or something like that. I'm not saying don't read people from this country or whatever. And frankly, if you look at a list of names in the bibliography, you don't necessarily know. But if you think about it, right, if you spend a little bit of time in the bibliography, because I know sometimes if you read a journal article or a book, You say, I want to read those articles that it cited, right? 
Well, maybe when you start to look at these citations, you'll see, wait, they're kind of citing the same six people over and over again. I had a slide in here originally, but I wasn't entirely sure how hard the data was, and I didn't want people to be like, well, you know. But I've been doing some uh, research personally about citations, and one of the things I've found is that articles that, at least in my judgment, have been seeking to challenge the status quo, cite like twice as many authors of color than articles that don't. So if you are looking at articles that challenge the status quo, chances are you're going to read a lot more people who look a little bit different. This was the first episode where we encounter Kelly Wright, who will come back before the end. Um, and Kelly Wright is talking about, um, well, one of her articles, the article in general is about discrimination in real estate um, but and linguistic discrimination in general. But she's talking right now about the linguistic discrimination and how it operates within the legal system. So why don't you check it out, because she's really uh, laying down the law here. Oh, what a cliche, Justin, whatever. Um, no. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so law. Um, this might come as a surprise, but the legal system is entirely linguistically based. It is a fundamentally linguistic endeavor, our justice system. We write laws in words. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not trying to be reductive. It's just, it's shocking how literally one sentence is the difference between who is free and who is not, who is a citizen and who isn't, what's a crime and what isn't. Um, is the interpretation under a, an existing statute, which is worded in a way that is, in, you know, either narrowly or widely interpreted. And uh, over time, which we also know language changes over time, but the law doesn't. It remains solid, crystallized for <laughs> centuries, as we've seen with our own constitution. So what does that mean? Um, when we sort of think about the ways in which someone sounds or the words that they use, like outside of policy discussions, so like insert all policy discussions, every single one of them is problematic, there are no exceptions. <laughs> the, when you start to think about a crime, these these problems about um, expectation of the most standardized and most prestigious language in the presence of the law in any form, so whatever form the law can take, a judge, you know, the rules, it's, you know, the police, this kind of stuff can start to affect you even before the minute that you're charged with a crime. And one really um, still, still quite saddening example of this is Sandra Bland. So Nicole Holliday and a handful of others uh, wrote about this on um, several blogs when it was happening in 2015. Um, but Sandra Bland was sort of pulled out of her car and then later arrested because of, uh, of what was stated as a perceived impoliteness. And this impoliteness is something that follows the African-American language variety. People say that African-American speakers sound rude or angry or disrespectful when they're just talking. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that this kind of negative ideology helps end her life. 
um, that she may not have been pulled out of her car if she was speaking a more standard variety or had chosen to in her sort of interaction with the police. Um, yeah, for, like formality and respect are sort of evaluated as a function of standard and non-standard language. So if you're speaking standard, it's because you care about what you're doing, you're attentive to the situation that you're in, you're being honest. If you're speaking non-standard language, all of those things are questionable. It's not like we automatically think you're the devil or a murderer. It's just that we're not, we don't question it in one situation and we do question it in another. And when it comes down to a jury of your peers who most of the time aren't your peers, <laughs> um, a little bit of difference in the way that you speak really matters. Um, it matters so much that people get sent to jail because of how they sound. Um, they get sent to jail because our transcriptionists are terrible and do not understand the variation in American dialects. So an African-American person who's uh, interviewed as a witness, an alibi witness even, says something like, he be working, which doesn't mean he's at work right now. It means he has a job. And so if a standard English speaker is transcribing that, they will edit someone's language to fit standard English. And that obscures the truth. So this is when I sort of started to figure it out for this thing. So this is episode 10. And um, in episode nine, afterwards, Kelly reached out to me and said, Justin, you don't talk on your own podcast, which I thought to be untrue. But I realized that it was the case when I talked to someone whose work that I had come to really admire, I didn't talk that much. And uh, there were a couple of times when I would start babbling, but generally speaking, they weren't as much of conversations, right? I still can even, my wife wasn't super into it because they weren't conversations. It was either one person, which is like around back and forth, back and forth, but not intertwined, you know, just sort of two people talking in turn. And I just, I thought, well, I'll just let the people talk, you know, I they want, the people want to hear what they have to say and I haven't done anything. But after Kelly's advice, I started to really plan to really get into the conversations. And this was the first time that I really, really did. Um, the interesting thing is that the episodes before this have more listeners, but that's just because I happened to connect with a person who promoted them, a couple of them around uh, in November. And so the episodes that already existed got a lot of listeners whatever. But this is the first episode I recorded on Zoom. Zoom is a weird platform and we all know how to use it now in 2020. But um, one thing that's useful about it is that you are on, it records, but it only records the person who's speaking because it does the like speaker view thing when you're talking to them. So whoever's speaking gets the little box around them. All that is to say is that um, as you'll hear in the episode after this, it does not record whatever's going on on your side of things if you're not speaking. And my dog was having trouble at the time because his daycare was closed. It's still closed now, obviously, but at the time it was closed suddenly and he was having trouble at night. Um, so he makes a lot of noise in the next several video, several podcast episodes. Um, so anyway, please enjoy. This is with Maureen Cossey and she's talking about uh, what white supremacists do on the internet to get their dirty work done. Yeah. So one of the things that 
um, that makes this kind of work very frustrating is that part of of the memeing slash propaganda slash trolling machine is appropriating symbols that were innocuous before. So um, if you're somebody who liked using Pepe the Frog memes, you'll notice that you cannot really post a Pepe the Frog meme without uh, it really drawing or invoking this white nationalist association. And so they kind of like taint things with their ideology to try and reappropriate those symbols. And so they accomplished a pretty big hoax where they did the same thing with the okay sign, where um, a bunch of people uh, got right wing politicians and like talking figures to make a little okay sign. And then it got picked up um, by the media. Uh, but I am. Oh, I actually realized so that they really did do that just to mess with people. Yeah, because they, they wanted to say, look at these hysterical liberals. They'll make they'll make this into a, to anything they want because all of this is like flipping. It's 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 like how my my younger sister and sorry Kiki if you're listening, but when we were little, she would say little naggy things that would get me really upset, and I had a terrible temper, so I would freak out. And and then you know I was the one who got in trouble, and that's a lot of what their online tactics do because they're not good faith actors. They're not interested in anything like truth or justice or, um, in fact, they thrive on inequity. That's exactly what they want. And they also thrive on truth being conceptualized as a fully relative concept. Um, and so what they're trying to do is persuade you that, that their narrative uh, better reflects reality than, than the the ongoing um, narrative that we're part of now. It's kind of like a, I don't want to say it's a side reality because that gives too much credence to their like cognitive state, but it like. Sounds like red pill. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's what we were going to talk about is like um, words that are shared. Yes. So red pill being like the perfect example um, for those of you who are lucky enough not to know um, in, in the film, the matrix uh, Neo takes the red pill, which reveals to him, you know, the truth that, uh, humanity is being preyed upon by this larger entity. Uh, notice it's a perfect storyline that matches with what the alt-right is saying. Um, and so they, a lot of um, their, their kind of propagandistic techniques involve comparing what they, what they project as the, the white nationalist narrative onto these like movie narratives and story narratives, um, which is a really, so the matrix thing represents that kind of tendency. But aside from that, you still see sometimes you see references to like Chad's and Stacy's, which is oh, a very yeah. incel thing. Yeah. That's a little bit rarer because um, the kind of hyper macho white masculinity that the alt right espouses um, doesn't leave a lot of room for uh, <laughs> uh, not being attractive to women. So this is um, a crossover with. Yusid Ortega, who has his own podcast called Chasing Encounters. And um, this is mostly about his life and his career. There is an episode on his podcast where he interviews me about my life and my career. Um, but this is the episode with him on it. You will notice that you can hear a whole bunch of nonsense in the background because I was not using Zoom. Or actually, I started using Audacity, which is an audio recording program. And uh, the problem with it is it records too much. And you can hear stuff in the background. So I used it a couple of times, and then I stopped using it. Yeah.
students because you are working in language uh, education. So has there been a, a different way that you've been seen as a language educator because, you know, your home language or maybe the best way first language, whatever is in English? It's interesting this question that you mentioned that because I never got the job oh. at all. <laughs> so well, in, my, in my first two, three years, because I never got a job as a teacher anywhere because of the whatever things are happening here. So with my ex-wife, we decided to create this company about teaching languages to children, babies and preschoolers. Hence my work with my, my, my master's thesis was about that. So we created this company and we, we, we taught Spanish to babies and then we hired French teachers, German, Italian teachers to teach babies and to teach preschoolers. And it was well for the first two years, just so we can get a job on the things that we were experts, right? And then after that, uh, I entered into the masters and then I just couldn't keep up with the work. And then, and then I, since then I've been a student till now. But going back to your question about how the students treat me, um, I've been a research assistant, so I didn't have much contact with students before. So basically just relations with my supervisor, relations with um, um, people I have worked with, uh, principal investigators, et cetera. And the relationship have be, has been pretty well, of course. So it was not until last year that I actually got a job as a, as, as a, as a lecturer at a university. And the interesting thing, I got this job, and I believe the reason why I got this job is because exactly I'm an inter I, I'm quote unquote an international student. I am an international person. I understand immigrants. I understand students who come from abroad. So I'm teaching uh, TESOL to students, right? And and then because I definitely understand where, where they're coming from. So I, in a sense, for the university, I am an asset for them, which is good. <laughs> I feel I, I feel I feel like it's a, it's a good thing because in a sense, I rem now that I remember. When I go into the class and teach, I feel that I, the students relate to me and I relate to them because I can tell vivid examples of what it means to come to Canada, come to the United States and feeling the difficulties and the challenges of the language, etc. So I give vivid examples and they laugh at my examples of when I was learning English when I came to North America. And then I sort of give examples of my own personal experience and then I give the theory, example theory, and they like that and they relate that. So in that sense, I feel like my students really like me. So I have never had the chance to have quote unquote white students yet. So I don't have that experience. But with this ones, because these are international students, I think the experience has been uh, relatable. Uh, this is another one of my Little Justin episodes. It's about a, what I call a pedagogy of heretical whiteness idea I had. Not sure what I'm going to do with it, but I wanted to record it, get it out there. I'm glad that I record these ideas when they happen. So, um, yeah, it's about how whiteness is sort of a religion and you need to be able to go directly against it as a white person in order to actually have any progress on racism. Right, you need to challenge this commonly accepted dominant faith in whiteness. What's a heretic, right? Who's been considered a heretic? Usually people being considered a heretic are people who actually see the truth, right? Like a Joan of Arc or something like that, right? That's a heretic, right? They're killed 
for their heresy. Right? I don't want you to get killed. But like, who else is a heretic? John Brown is a heretic, right? To bring in more contemporary white people who challenge whiteness are often in danger. Joan of Arc was not fighting for the same things that John Brown was fighting for. I don't know what Joan of Arc thought about race, but um, they were treated exactly the same way. You know, people didn't openly call John Brown a heretic for challenging slavery. But remember that slavery was often justified with Christianity. So to challenge slavery was to challenge Christianity. Ultimately, as John Brown might have said, it's whiteness, it's this white supremacy that needs to be challenged, needs to be defeated, right? So I'm telling you, especially if you listening to this or if you're in the sense that you need to become a heretic. You can't just be a skeptic. You can't just be a little bit uncomfortable in your heart about what's going on with other people, right? You need to become heretic. Episode 13 here is with Brendan DeCoster. This is another one of those episodes where I foolishly put music in the background like an idiot. Sorry about that. I think it's the last one that I did that on. So, you know, good thing I stopped doing that. It's another episode where I use the audio recorder Audacity and, you know, you might hear some stuff in the background. That's why I put the music on. Anyway, here he is talking a lot about... Um, sort of the essence of a lingua franca. And this episode is really about how English is used as the language of greater communication. Part of that is Jennifer Jenkins' ideas of what that really means. Um, and, you know, what is the grammar? What is the lexus? Um, what is the usage of English as a lingua franca? How do we define this? How can we establish a lexicon? How can we establish a dictionary, etc.? Um, and that, to me, is hugely problematic because it's really people looking at uh, the usage of English in quotation marks here uh, for a number of purposes of communication amongst people who do not have it as their quote native language uh, to accomplish a number of different tasks, which of course is what we do with language. Um, but they're attempting to codify it and say, this is what it is, uh, so that we can actually teach it and make sure that everybody knows the standard lexicon. Um, I find that hugely problematic, um, because really it's attempting to put the cart before the horse and say, here is exactly what you should use to do these things and to accomplish these functions, rather than what you are doing to accomplish these functions. Um, and of course, it's being done externally by academics, oftentimes from the West, uh, trying to put together dictionaries, etc., in uh, institutions that are far removed from what's actually going on on the ground. So that's one thing about English as a lingua franca. In terms of the actual on the ground, how we use a lingua franca, um, this is a standard thing. This is something that happens. It's natural. It's exactly what happens in language all the time. Um, it's the most, well, I would probably argue the most basic feature of language, which is finding some sort of symbolic means, some shared symbolic means uh, to communicate uh, with other people.
episode 14, and we're sort of at the halfway point of the season, because if you count it up, this is the 28th episode of the season. I don't expect that I will do 28 every year. I think I would like to do 26, maybe. Um, But anyway, this episode is with Alice Kim, and she's talking about her experiences as an ELT professional and how she was treated differently in different parts of the world based on her own racialization. So take a listen. As I think any POC teacher might wonder, that when they walk into a classroom and they have students from Europe, um, how they might meet the expectations of certain students. And I, um, that student gave me a hard time, did from beginning to end. Um, he was very resistant to a lot of the things I wanted them to do in class, like group activities. He didn't want to work with certain students. Um, I've, you know, I've had those experiences as well. But yeah, I can't help but wonder if it's because he believes, he does not believe that I'm qualified to teach him test prep. Um, but given that I was teaching the test prep course in a well-established university where, you know, the assumption is that all teachers are vetted for and highly qualified, I think there wouldn't have been as much pushback, uh, say, compared to me teaching in like a language school, you know what I mean, where... Um, where students have a lot more say in terms of their education and how it's going to be provided to them for better or for worse. So that's a good segue to the next thing I was going to say. Because, you know, people often say, all right, so it's difficult for teachers of color or racialized teachers, depending on how you want to classify it, to get the positions that we want in the sphere. Um, we can get a job, like we talked about, but we can't always get the job, you know? Um, and some would say, which is a pretty bad excuse, they'll just say, well, this, the students or their parents, depending on how old they are, don't want that, so the economic incentives justify our hiring practices, which are not explicitly racial, but they'll just, oh, we'll just hire the best person for the job, but we'll hire the people that are the most popular for, you know, in this little circle where they don't talk about race with races in the background the whole time. Um, and, you know, it's really hard to win an argument when they're just like, look at the money, you know? And then you can even see the, there's studies on this that the students, if asked, will say that they rate the competence of white presenting teachers higher than non-white presenting teachers and it's really hard to break this loop you know um especially from our perspective like we can sit here and be like this is a problem but they're over there hi- making their hiring decisions without us um so, so it's a business it's a business model and in the end i mean the you and I know that sounds incredibly cynical, um, but yeah, numbers do matter. Numbers of students and student retainment and student attainment matter. Recruitment matters, and um, student feedback then therefore matters. If they're happy with the classes they're getting, if they're happy with the instructions, uh, instructors, and I had a taste of that myself teaching at a language school for uh, almost a year. Um, 
I felt like it was, you know, at times it felt like a popularity contest. Alright, so this is another episode where I'm by myself and I'm expounding upon something that I find particularly upsetting, which is meritocratic ideologies. Uh, meritocracy is something that Americans find really interesting, but it's really harmful and I think it keeps racism and oppression in place. So um, well, this, article, this episode is, is based on an article that I didn't actually get published. Um, and it's really dense, but I think it was something that I uh, really made some interesting points about meritocracy and racism and white fragility and a whole bunch of other things that you heard me talk about, but in a way that connects all of them together. So I hope you enjoy. Subversion, where they've shown that you give people the chance to win a hundred or the chance to lose a hundred dollars you have to up that possible winning to, I think, something like twice as much. People won't. People are much more afraid of losing $100 than they are excited to win $100. That fear of loss is much a much stronger motivator than a possible gain. There's a study that showed that not only are people more motivated by a fear of loss, but that fear often correlates with unethical behavior. So if people think they're going to lose something, they might go against their ethics or their morals now. It's up to philosophers to decide whether allowing systemic racism to continue because you're afraid of losing money is more unethical or immoral. Probably more the latter. But you see what I'm saying here. So, I get it, right? That white fragility is based on that loss aversion. That loss aversion is based on that fear, that scarcity in the field. And that scarcity in the field is what the field depends on. Now, there's a lot of fields that depend on systemic racism. Um, and there's a lot of fields that are competitive where there's not a lot of money to go around. English language teaching is not the worst career on the planet or anything like that. But this career specifically, if you challenge systemic racism... To truly challenge it, it would mean ceding power to racialized speakers of English. Now, think about how these programs are run, how they're structured. They offer often uh, uh, survival English classes. Those classes basically are like, how do you go to the grocery store? How do you fill out forms? How do you go to the doctor? I'm not saying people don't need to do that. But a lot of these programs struggle with the transition. They really just give people the very basics. Uh, you know, enough so that they can maybe attain a job as an apartment cleaner. But this is still tied back to the idea at the core of our field that many of these learners are deficient and they don't actually deserve to have much more than basic subsistence. No one thinks that these people deserve to be in the gutter. But do we really think these people deserve to have the same lives that we have, Right? You might say, yes, of course I believe that. What are you doing? I don't mean you, literally you. I mean as it's the proverbial you. What are you doing to give them the same institutional power that you have as a white native speaker?
So this is uh, another episode where I'm talking with Vijay Ramjutan, who I spoke to about accents back in the day. And we're talking about employability and professionalism, and how these concepts are used to keep uh, racial differences in place. Uh, this whole show was about how racism has seeped into all the different parts of our language. And when we tell people racism is everywhere, it really is everywhere. So another way that it exists is through the concept of employability. So in a way, professionalism, I think, is, is, is kind of a, an understanding. It's like an agreement, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the problem is people define it so differently that it becomes a gatekeeping thing where it doesn't, doesn't need to, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's the way I see it. Um, well, it's, it's interesting because, like, based on what you're saying, like, there are, there are, multiple types of definitions of professionalism within an organization, right? But, mm-hmm. right, depending, like, if you're just a regular worker, right, your, your notion of professionalism isn't going to be regarded as sort of the norm throughout the organization. Right? So there's sort of these hegemonic definitions, right? So depending on your place in the organization, whose notions of professionalism get valued, right? Mm-hmm. Is that something we have to consider? I guess going back to that point about employability and professionalism, I think you're right in saying like employability is is like a, is a process. You have to start working with employability right in the backstage, like before you enter an organization, and then it becomes more about professionalism and maintaining that your your place in that organization. But I think one thing to to add to to your point is that how in certain types of workplaces, sometimes you can't always have your own your own um, definition or practice your own definition of professional. So I'm thinking about like um, just a weird example, the fashion modeling industry. So in that industry, right, we know like um, embodied white is once again is sort of the the ideal norm, the the pinnacle of beauty, right? And so if you're uh, particularly like a black, black models, for example, right, they have to sort of whiten themselves in a way because that's what's that's what's marketable. That's what's going to give you give them a job in the in the fashion modeling industry, right? So, even if they have certain beauty standards for themselves, right, to get that sort of next contract, they have to sort of abandon them and kind of do what's required of employers and stuff like that. So, sometimes the workplace context can constrain how we actually define and, and sort of practice our own notions of professionalism. Yeah, um, I think about like how it, it, professionalism, it, it's often, um, if you are completely disinterested in a certain topic, but it's very common to discuss that topic at work, and you make a point of just showing your disinterest that if you were just out with people and you just weren't interested, that'd be one thing, but at work, like if you don't join in, that's seen, you know, that's classified that, oh, this person is not joining in the discussion and therefore this is unprofessional you know um so like you, you do have to act differently um in yeah and, and the thing is every workplace is different because some places you just wouldn't care so this is um just a nice little episode where i interviewed a woman named Jake syndrome about her experiences and how she brings uh theater and language education together um really a different sort of um change of pace from some of the really serious episodes. And I don't mean to say that she's less serious. I mean that like uh, the 
we had a really pleasant, warm conversation. Um, and we still talked about race because that's the, the, the theme of the show um, and her experiences. And she's mostly worked in Spain and then moved back to the United States. And yeah, it was a really nice little episode, mostly about her, her career. And it's definitely worth listening to. So I hope you enjoyed this snippet of it and you go back and listen. Um, in language learning. So I, I saw all that work culminating there and, and the great effect that it had. And then, you know, won the, the election. And I saw where the country was going. And I saw a bunch of kids that looked like me, that looked like my family, feeling scared. Or I saw people, you know, in my that my uh, immigrated from Puerto Rico and Cuba. Um, and I saw, you know, like the refugee situation. I actually met a bunch of refugees because when that all exploded, um, I was actually in, gosh, where was I? I was in Austria traveling to Hungary and there were a bunch of them on the train. I was like, who are these people? Why is there somebody? Like, I didn't know, I didn't know what was going on. And I got to like meet some of these people and they were telling me things. I was like, what? What's happening? Because I was disconnected. I didn't have a smartphone at the time. Um, and so I started to think about these people coming into the situation here you know, so it didn't have to be from my background, but people of different backgrounds, you know, trying to learn English to survive, trying to just get here, trying to, um, and I thought, you know, I, I need to go back. I need to go back because ultimately I think I've done a great, you know, thing here in Spain and hopefully I've affected these people's lives that they can like take that and spread the good word of, you know, our stereotypes don't necessarily <laughs> hold up. And I needed to come back here and support people that look like me or that um, had similar experiences to my family or that didn't. Um, and that was important to me. I was brown, a female. And I always say this, I'm like, I'm brown, I'm female. And I'm very, 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 very loud. And I'm very, very unapologetic about that. And all my students were like, Jade, you're going to get arrested. This is specifically not a time for you to go back, which would make me laugh. And I was like, oh, you guys are so sweet. Promise me you'll bail me out if I, you know, I'm screaming votes for women or whatever. And, you know, it, we'll call it a day. And they were just like, okay, but we really don't think you should go back. And I'm like, no, this is exactly why I need to go back. I need to go back because I need to show immigrants and, and people that maybe have even migrated just from Puerto Rico or, you know, which is in our country, reminder. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So this is where this is where it all changed. So this is right about when the lockdown started in New York, and uh, well, lockdown is a bad word for stay-at-home order shelter, but all these words are bad. When it was more advised that we stay home, and all of the restaurants and everything were closed, and I didn't go to physical work anymore. Let's put it that way. I decided that was going to. I just, I, I, if I sat here and thought about how bad it was going to get, and in March, we all knew it was going to get bad, and I don't think any of us knew how bad it was going to get. But of course. I just sort of sat here in my apartment and just looked out the window. And I said, I got to talk about this stuff with people. And I also wanted to involve the research I'm doing on whiteness, race, and language. So I started recording episodes every week. If you've been paying attention, you know that. Um, and most of these are a series of conversations with, you know, uh, critical scholars um, talking about language, race, and all these sorts of things. Uh, the first person I spoke to was Dr. Jessica Sue, who uh, has written about niceness and whiteness, and that's most of what we talked about. So this is the first, what I ended up calling critical COVID conversations, which 
you know, it's kind of a dumb name, but once I had it, I had to keep doing it. Anyway, Jessica Sear. Um, so I think colorblindness and niceness are very, very linked. I think that if we say that we don't see race, then it justifies why we're not talking about race. It talks about why we're not um, incredibly enraged when things like police brutality disproportionately affect communities of color. Um, if we just say we don't see it, it's, it lets us, I feel like niceness is a bubble that like once that bubble is burst like you're not protected by niceness anymore like you have to actually be in the world with the bad stuff and as we're all living in a bubble currently that's a pretty apt metaphor i think but if i just live in my little bubble and don't acknowledge some of the bad things that are happening, not to people like me, but to people of color and other marginalized communities. I get to keep living my nice life. So the next one here is a conversation with uh, Dr. Abby Payunini, and this conversation is another one of the times where I screwed up the audio. Sorry about that. If you listen to the episode yourself, it sounds better than it does here. Um, but basically, we're talking a lot about industry things in general. She's someone who's chosen to move away from an academic career, and she's talking about that. And in this part, particularly, we're talking about the sort of conference industry, because with no conferences foreseeable future, we're wondering about how conferences are going to change in the future, and she's talking about some of the issues that conferences have in the past. And it's also the same people, it's people from the same companies. And um, it's like the refrain of, oh, we want to be diverse, and we want to have unheard voices, and we want to and fresh faces, and then they just seem to pick like maybe one or two people that no one's ever heard of, and the rest of them are all famous people in the industry. And it's it's really disheartening because like it's like that um, you, you talk the talk, you don't walk the walk, right? And I know it's a balance between you know the tickets for these conferences are just astronomically priced. Like you can be at, like a thousand or two thousand for just entrance for a conference like this. And so I know that they have to um, pay for their sponsor or pay for their um, their venues and you know the catering and all that stuff and swag and this and that. And, um, so they want to make sure that they get enough ticket sales to account for all of those expenses. But at the same time, you can't be saying you want marginalized voices when you only pick one or two people that have not had the opportunity to present at a conference before. Like, it was just really frustrating to me. And I'll give you an example of why I think that my idea was validated for that, or my, my um, theory about that is validated, is that uh, 
I got into a conference and the people were wonderful. They were just really great. They were just really talked to walk, talk to talk, all of that. They're just super inclusive, really kind. They paid for everybody's airfare and their hotel and their flights and they just really did a great job. Um, but at the time I had a book contract with a very big industry publisher and as soon as I lost that contract, I stopped getting accepted in the company. Now this next now this next conversation is with Dr. Marion Durrani and honestly I heard about her on Mike Mena's um, YouTube channel because Mike Mena is even better at this than I am and by that I mean he's actually good at it. Anyway, and so I found her work interesting, and I looked her up and started doing research, started following her on Twitter, and I found her really, I was like, oh, man, if this person would be interested in speaking to me, it would be great. And she was, and we spoke, and I almost screwed it up because I got the Zoom invitation wrong, and I made sure that we had the conversation. But anyway, she's re she really challenged me intellectually, and I don't mean that to be like a paternalistic thing. I mean in the sense that I felt like I really had to bring my game to talk with her, and even though we were just having brief long conversation so um i think this is one of the conversations i learned the most from and we didn't talk we didn't have a specific topic we talked about anthropology we talked about race we talked about different types of racism anti-muslim racism which i didn't know much about i mean i knew about it but i hadn't really thought too deeply about it till i read the word so i think this is one you're going to want to go back to i think from again like teaching linguistic anthropology or teaching anthropology of race and racism that particular book, when I read it, I was just like, I'm going to teach methods from now on with this book because there's there's so much um, like skill that I think gets uh, erased when we don't recognize um, what it's happening in that text, for example. I mean, even in terms of like, you know, in, in anthropology, we have like the writing culture moment, right, um, which uh, is said to have happened in like the 80s and 90s. And then you have, even at that time when the, those um, scholars were writing, there were uh, feminist anthropologists uh, from an earlier moment who said, we've been writing about some of these things for a while, by the way, <laughs> um, if you haven't noticed. And I think going back even further to Hurston's work, where she actually refused to publish um, Barracoon at that time because she refused to change the dialect that she had written Kusula's, um, you know, narrative in. And that kind of like ethical um, integrity is something that I think we lose when we are driven towards particular ideas of like knowledge production that do not, uh, for example, begin with the humanity of our um, you know, participants, uh, teachers, um, interlocutors, uh, whatever the term is, like for the people who help us do the research that we do. And I think, again, like when I, when I um, read, uh, you know, her work and other people's work and how they were writing about these issues 100 years ago, 150 years ago, um, it is striking because there's always this like, you know, a uh, sad excuse that people use that like, oh, that was just the, that was just the times. That's just how people used to do things back then. And it's like, actually, even researchers were thinking about ethics uh, at the very kind of beginning of formal anthropology in the United States, right? Um, 
it, it's uh, it's sad when that happens, but I also think like that's the work that we get to do now. Um, and that's the, the ways that we can kind of change some of these conversations. Um, so I was, I was, that was really fun to write. And the other really amazing thing about that piece was that I got a, um, I got an email from Faye Harrison after that was published, where she was like, I really appreciated what you wrote. And it really, um, I didn't, and I also appreciate that you cited my work. And I was just kind of like, first of all, <laughs> like, of course, uh, I would not be here if it was not for you, you know, and um, just that kind of like, um, humility, I think that is taught uh, within certain traditions of anthropology often gets um, just it, it's ignored and I think it's ignored very strategically and politically but um, those of us who know about it have to do the work of educating others. And, and the powers that, that he's, the people that are working behind the scenes with him are probably smart enough to pull that off. Right. But he is not the individual that they need him to be in order to uh, have that face on. They really, I, I don't know why, I don't know why they chose him. Yeah. But um, yeah, it would be, I mean, and one of the things that people are talking about right now is the, the ability of us as a as a nation right the dominant culture part of this nation to move everything online to you know give people money to uh you know say yeah we're going to do it this way or yeah we're going to fix this thing for this moment and so it's wonderful that people are in the mood of like yes so we can do these accommodations for people who are disabled or we can um make it easier for students to access education or we can um make it easier for people to have paid time off or to have sick leave or um and there's there's that flip side i know that probably a lot of grad students and professors are experiencing um i definitely do not want my college to insist that i teach 14 classes online because it's online you don't have to be there so you've got all day so you could do this it's an it's a stopgap for my students who weren't taking online classes um, it is not the same class that my online students signed up to take. Do you know what I mean? They're just not prepared. And there's the digital divide and there's the access divide and there's the rural poverty and there's the urban poverty. And there's so many underlying things that we haven't done anything about. Like they have not gone into um, the cities that we're near and, and fixed access for for students to go online. So like students who were taking classes three weeks ago are having to drop them because they don't have any way to do the class. They literally have no computer, no, no, right? Um, so yeah, I would love for it to be a best case scenario and everything is rosy and, and 
gently socialist and, you know, we are all kind and life is good. And I also understand that it could turn exactly as you're saying into this really horrible Gilead sort of thing. And so many people are not okay right now, right? They're losing their homes because they can't pay rent. They're, they've lost jobs. They've got huge unemployment. They've got all kinds of things going on. So yeah, fix it, but he's not the guy to do it. So this is what I was doing all these conversations every week related to COVID. And then I, I just realized that, you know, I had something to say. And so I wrote, I recorded another solo episode about uh, New York because New York has experienced quite some disasters since I've been here my whole life, most of my life at least. There was 9-11, there was a financial crisis, there was standing, and there's this. And in each case, you know, I've been mildly affected, but okay. I've been adjacent to the disaster. So in a mix of survivors field and also where I am in my life right now, I'm realizing that the research I'm doing, this public scholarship, what I'm doing with this podcast, all of it, it you know, it has to matter because I, it seems I'm not religious at all. But if I'm going to keep surviving and being barely affected by these disasters that are right next to me, then I, I'm lucky and I need to do something with it. So this whole thing is building up to making the point that, that it is necessary that I do something with the good fortune I have. Um, left only with the option to keep moving forward. I feel extremely guilty about, you know, continuing to be unharmed. And I feel grateful. And um, I think it's very important that I continue to do the work that I need to do. Uh, because let me tell you, most of these disasters wouldn't have happened if whiteness wasn't in charge. You know, many of these disasters were, you know, quote unquote, natural or um, biological in nature, but the response to them, the people, any decision that was made has always made such that the people who don't matter get harmed the most. And what I've struggled with for many years is the fact that I do well in the white world. I don't have that much money, but like I do well, I do well in standardized tests. I don't even study that hard. Um, I'm, pretty good at mimicking that ethos. And I've told myself in the last two years since I started grad school, since I started my doctoral program, I don't want to write in a way that feels inauthentic because I won't do a good job. So I write the way I want to write. And it's going well. Yes, the New York State TESOL journal isn't huge, but that's a publication. Like my CV it has, has entries on it. I got a chapter accepted recently. A lot of people don't get that. I don't know. And I'm writing with my very distinct voice. It leads me to believe that whatever I end up trying to do after I get my degree will work. 
And that's why it's really important to me that I really consider the choices I make in the writing, in this podcast, um, in my public facing work, because if I'm going to keep surviving and it seems like I will, New York has to be better off for it. Uh, this one was fun. This next one was fun. Well, back to my regular conversations with people, young scholars. Um, I guess they're not all young, but this one is younger than I am. And I don't know. I like Betsy. I think she's fun. And uh, she told me afterwards that it sort of felt like having a conversation with a friend, even though we've never actually met. And it's true. We we, we got into the work, and we, we this is probably the one of the conversations in which um, you actually hear me laugh the most. I usually kind of overly serious in what I'm saying, but, you know, we, we actually had fun on this one, and um, you can hear it in the conversation. Is it the people for whom it is in the wheelhouse? They're saying other things. I mean, as someone who is now officially going in to do this, you know, it's just going to be up to you to now bring these people with you into the field. So... Um, yeah. And there's so many layers to that, too. It's like, not just what you're being taught, but what you're teaching students. And because it's a, it's a whole network of teaching, right? It's like, if you are in graduate school, and all of your professors are old white dudes, then, you know, the material that there, there's got to be extra legwork to make sure that the material that you're being presented or it's not all from old white dudes, which I can see if you're studying classics, <laughs> right? Like, uh, but, um, I mean, and this is not a new idea, but this idea of like identity, identity work in research and how white people get to believe that we're not doing identity work when we're studying the classics, even though the classics are about us, right? Right, and the fact that they're called classics. But, right, no, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, this is just classics, this, or it's, you know, it's classical music. Um, right. I, I used to have these very unsophisticated arguments in college. Right, because I had all these ideas, but I didn't have the words for them. You know what I'm saying? I had these yeah. beliefs, and I didn't have the words for them. And I would get really frustrated because I had basically I didn't I didn't have the knowledge base to explain things well, which is how college is. But um, like I didn't always direct it at the people who I should have directed it at. Like I would get frustrated with people who I was actually friends with because I had some friends who were at. You know, I was at Princeton, and I had friends who were at a music school, which was in Princeton. And they would tell me what they were studying. And I'm like, so how many Black people are you studying? They're like, well, it's just not in Canada. And I'm like, well, why isn't it in Canada? Mm. And they would be like, I don't know, man. And I'm like, well, maybe you should ask questions. And they're just, they're just like, leave me alone. But, <laughs> but I was just like, 
what I couldn't express was just like the fact that is the canon is the issue. I don't blame you, seven, you know, 18 year old for, for what they're giving you, right? You know, you're not a professor yourself, but like it was frustrating to me that, you know, just the name, you know, like uh, it's, um, Mm-hmm. It's still seen as like this defined thing, this, you know, this idea that if you play it before a child is born, they'll come out smarter or, or something like that. Or, you know, like this. this and yeah. using that, that, that word classic as though it's neutral. Right. Um, is part of the water that we're swimming in. I got into a Facebook argument with um, some people here. Okay, here's the setup. Um, the English department at Penn had agreed to take down a portrait of William Shakespeare and replace it with the students were asking for more diversity and representation. So the English department had agreed to this and two years later, they still hadn't done anything. So in the middle of the night, some students took the portrait down and taped up a picture of Audre Lorde. Wonderful. So this made the student paper and I posted the article on, on Facebook and the number of people who comment came on the wall to comment, like, why would you take down William Shakespeare? He deserves to be up there. He's classic. It's so important for students to like know who he is. A, as though there are no other great authors. B, as though like his status as, a, as like a classic author is ever in question. And D as the, I don't know, I forgot what letter I'm up to, but like- I think it was D, yeah. D as though, as though that sentence, he's such a classic author, is not in and of itself already steeped in these structural issues. <laughs> uh, I think I had a couple of really good ones in a row here. This is the one where we talk about Karen, right? Karen, the word that a certain demographic has decided is a slur and we talk about how it's not a slur but uh this is one of the first another episode where i brought people back so i brought back maureen cossey from the episode about the language of white supremacy and i brought back kelly bright from the language uh, sorry from the episode about um real estate and linguistic discrimination and we had a fun conversation all three of us about how becky is not becky although we talk about becky how karen is not a slur. And what should we actually call the term? People enjoyed this one, and I hope you enjoy hearing from it again. If there was a a way to feel any sympathy there for someone who's doing it, what I think might happen is in this archetypal evolution from someone who's more Becky type to more of a Karen type, things don't matter as much at that age for people. And they're, they're, these people are all middle class or above. So like, you, you know, obviously they're not out there in a situation where they're in a whole lot of stress in that way, but uh, things don't matter as much. And then they get to be 30 something, 40 something they are. And this is, you know, these are archetypes. So they're married, they do certain things and they probably don't have as much power in their lives as they want to. So they have to take it out on these other people. This is, I'm now painting a fictional picture of this character, but this is, I think, how it happens. And like, there would be a way to feel sorry for that if they weren't taking it out on people who had less power. <laughs> you know, like it would be sad. And, and, you know, the same way that I would feel really bad for what horrible things must have happened to the president to make him how he is if he wasn't actually doing all of this. So 
Like, like if he wasn't actually doing this, it would just be a very sad story. But um, so the thing, I don't really, I don't know what to do about this nonsense. I mean, they can just be mad, you know, whatever. There's that. They could just be mad, right? I'm okay with that. But if it's actually going to be a discussion that people have, then I think that people who work with and on language need to be part of the conversation. I think this is a situation where people who do the things that we do should be heard from. I, because I bet you on some local TV station there have been discussions about Karen. I haven't seen it. They have, there's been stuff going on in New York, let's put it that way. But uh, I bet there's been some places where there's less of this going on, although it's happening, they're just pretending otherwise. Um, in fact, I bet it's just Karen up and down at all those reopen everything marches. But, you know, um, in fact, that's an interesting thing to talk about because I, I don't think that you could go to one of those things and yell with no mask and be anything other than a Karen. I mean, I think that's just very Karen behavior to be going and yelling at people and saying, it doesn't matter. I just want to go back to work for some reason. Uh, so. Yeah, I guess I really think about like, it is conversations like this where I'm like, we can intervene. Hold <laughs> on. There's a whole field. There are several fields. There are many experts. Um, just listen to us, please, because we do the nerdy work for you. Um, yeah, the, the statement that Karen is the new N-word, it's like the statement itself violates your argument because you have put it in equivalency with something that you won't actually say or spell. And so if it won't, and there is very, very little that we will not say or spell very very little the list is short right and so because of that it's obviously not the same um and you can't call it the k-word because we already have one of those it's true so, I don't, so. it's one of the few things that we won't say <laughs> yeah and it's also another one of those things that we very much don't say uh, so in teaching a lot of people i guess especially younger people are not aware of that word which is right. great there are a lot of them, you know, that people that I heard when I was growing up that don't exist for people anymore. And that's wonderful. Um, but yeah, that's part of it is just like, there's a reason why some words are worse than others. And it, and it operates in a way that is really, I hope, fascinating for people because it's how all words get their meaning in <laughs> like conversation with others and in reference to the world the built environment that you live in it's like it sounds like I'm being an asshole but I think it's one of the most amazing things in the world it's what keeps me doing my work right and so I want to talk to people about it they're just so mad they're just so mad and I mean I guess like if somebody if I was like don't call me a bitch or don't call me the c-word or whatever and people were like no let me sit you down and tell you why it's not actually about the oppression of women and I'm like no women are super oppressed that's like um, you know I would I would maybe not want to listen so I don't know how we start a good conversation except I feel like a lot of people are making great arguments I mean being like online and seeing the comments you do see people being like because you haven't been oppressed forever like just over and over and over again and that really is the key point it's like it's that bad because we treated people 
that one that particular group that it singles out by the n-word because they're making the comparison not me i didn't set that up right is like i mean because they were so systematically oppressed and still are that's why it's not as bad i think you know because my my existential question always with all of this stuff is like how do you get people to listen who don't want to listen you know what i'm saying it's one thing to, if someone is interested in listening they just don't have the information right but people who want to listen and don't have information usually seek it out they may not get it but they they, they you know there are people who um like are they, maybe they don't have the terminology right maybe they just simply haven't come across it because they don't go to school for this stuff right so they don't have the you know all you know, lexical this and all they, they don't know that right um and that's that's most people right but they're open to it you know and that's easy that's great right you know it's like, oh, well, let me tell you all the things that I have learned. Um, and then I think part of the issue is that their uh, Karens uh, are, they, they're, you know, set in their ways. Um, and they're not necessarily people who are anywhere close to, to school. Not just because it's been a while. Not that you can't be in school at any age, but these people have not. Um, and so you know, maybe you can work on Becky, but uh, <laughs> it might be a little bit harder to work on someone who's so so ingrained in this identity that they, if you're going up to people and saying, I want to speak to a manager, like regularly, uh, then it's, it's, uh, it's going to be hard. Because also, if that's part of your identity, you, you don't, do that and then go, oh, I, I hated having to do that. I just, it's just, it's just made it ruin my day. No, you do it because you like doing it, right? You, you want to speak to the manager because you want to be able to say that you got to speak to them. It's just happened to me, like I've mentioned beforehand, on at the senior center a lot. I don't even mean the racial slur thing, but the, like, at the senior center, we work different shifts right? You know, morning, afternoon, evening. And uh, they, the biggest conflict at the senior center was lunch. So <laughs> it was just that there were too many people coming in at the same time. And so I had to be like, you need to wait. You need to wait. And then sometimes if there were too many people, we would run out of food. It wasn't, they didn't live there. So like you, they, could, they could get food. It's just, you had to come by a certain time. And sometimes we didn't have enough food. So I, you know, I, and often at lunch, my coworkers for some reason would just sort of let me handle things. Cause I don't know, they were closer friends with each other than they were with me. But um, it meant that they would get mad and they would say they needed to speak to the manager. And I'm like, there's no manager. You talk, just talk, there's no, there's no one above me. It's Saturday. No one is in the building over there. So, and then with the fact when they couldn't go above my head, they couldn't go above his head, I don't, and then they would leave. And it was like, all right, well, I guess that's resolved. Um, but they, that indignation, like how do you fight indignation? Like that is, that is just very hard to fight, you know, because it's one thing if Karen is sitting in a room and you're just having a conversation, they, she might get mad. But if they're already indignant, indignant then i don't know how i think you just had to let them you know let them let their steam off and then talk to them another time because it's not gonna you're not gonna get anywhere and that's a shame because like if you're letting them let their steam out then they're doing the oppressing because that they're letting their steam off on other people you know and that's where the harm comes in they can be mad in their house if they want to 
but if they're in people's faces or on the phone or whatever, the, you know, that's where the dehumanization, that's where the linguistic violence or literal violence comes in. Um, and that's what worries me because by the time some Karen realizes the error of her ways, how many people have been left in her wake already? How many managers have been called for no reason? You know? Uh, and I wonder, and I, I strongly doubt it. I wonder if this whole thing will make them kinder to people who are out there working, but I am actually, they're probably being even worse. <laughs> uh, you know, so uh, I, these sort of situations, not that there have been that many that are exactly like this, if, you know, but like you tend to see people act better or worse. People don't tend to, nobody comes out of this exactly the same. And that, that means like not all Karens are going to come out of this shining beacons of goodness. You know, a lot of them are going to get even more hardened in their ways. And that's one of the things I've been thinking about this whole time is like, there are going to be a lot of people who really want to make things better. And there's going to be a lot of people who just want to make things even worse. And I am scared for all of the frontline workers, not just because of this, but because of Karen, <laughs> you know, who's, you know, maybe not, now the stores are reopening in places and Karen's going to be out there getting them six. That's a whole situation. I think that's also like um, one of the most insidious things about white supremacy, especially like, cause we've been talking about how it's like, literally quite low, like coded into our legal system um, and the ways that it influences the way that we think in general is just like the entitlement that shows up. It's this exact same thing. Like, I don't, sorry, I feel like I'm taking it to 10. I'm not saying Karens are school shooters, but it's the same kind of thing. It's like, if you um, read those, like, I'm sorry, I am a garbage person, but if you read, you know, a manifesto, it's the same kind of thing where it's like, how dare that person speak to me that way? And that's, really um like the the folks uh who wanted the food like there is this sense of like you are not the person to tell me no and they might not recognize that out of um you know maybe they might not identify that as a, an opaque sense of superiority but that's where it is is the expectations that we have in other people and like yeah i just that's the i think one of the um, most insidious parts of white supremacy as i said before it's just how it um seeps into especially white people's expectations of how they're supposed to be treated and it's just intolerable to not be um given the luxury of being an individual um and treated as you know i don't hate the snowflake discourse but it really it's like you're a snowflake karen you really want people to like treat you as an individual while you can treat everyone else as though they're, they're one monolith And we went back to our regularly scheduled programming conversations with uh, emerging scholars about the current age. And this time we talked to Ale Babino. I say we, it's just me. I talked to Ale Babino about her, her career, and she's done a lot of work with gifted and talented students. She's done a lot of work with bilingual education in districts, and she teaches uh, undergrad, masters, and doctoral students now. And she challenges them on the way that they see the world. So this was an interesting conversation. And I hope that you can go back and listen to it. Of course, at this point, now that I'm recapping these things in early June, this was only a few weeks ago. Though. So it's not like I'm saying go back to August. But 
the same originally, but still, go back and listen to it. Like, what do you think we're going to have, we're going to, we don't know anything yet, but we're going to have seen when we start to be able to gain information about all of these students at schools like that when, I don't know, in the fall or whenever people are back where they're going to be? Mm -hmm. So I would say, or I would hope what's come to the forefront, at least what I get to see um, on social media through my friends and colleagues that are still in the district, is that what has been further heightened is that schools are not just schools that they are central social um, means for good as they provide free breakfast, lunch, libraries, technology, and some districts in our area have even provided free hotspots and have gone into the communities to provide the materials they need, technology and otherwise. And so for me, what I see is a further exemplification and really a highlight of how much schools really do um, and try to push back what I would just say is outright evil and the, um, the, dis the distribution of wealth, right? Um, and so for me, as horrible as inequity is, I see so much good that can happen at schools. Um, of course, at the very same time, I realize they're not ameliorating everything, right? Um, there's still students and families that are hard hit and falling through the cracks, but I see so much incredible social good um, that my colleagues get to do. And so um, I would say one of, one of the most frustrating things as a critical educator is the deprofessionalization of educators in the public. And so if anything, I feel like this, again, further um, entrenches how much we really do. Uh, I, I was reading a book, um, A History of Disability in the United States uh, for my class on disability. And one of the things I noticed, I actually talk about this in one of the episodes that hasn't come out yet, um, is that in the colonial period, uh, they're mentioning how disability is treated. And there's like, here is a man who, like, if it was today, we would have a diagnosis for him. But mm -hmm. basically, he, you know, he was schizophrenic or something, and he had heard voices, talked to himself, something. Um, it's not to dismiss him, I'm just saying those were the symptoms. And, right. you know, so they like put him in a room and gave him some food. But he also taught the kids. So it's like, it was like the, uh -huh. the, the, the people that they didn't know what to do with. Okay, well, they're the teachers. So like, I, I say this to say that every, it sort of, go, there's like, it like goes up and goes down. Every so often we have this period where educators are greatly respected and they're, mm -hmm. they're seen the way they are in some other countries where like when I was in Korea, educators are very well respected. Uh, you know, it's like one of the highest things you can do. And I'm talking like K-12 teachers, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but then possibly because it is a very female profession these days, uh, it's just seen as like, 
something people do because they don't know what else they don't know how many else to do so now they can oh we'll just be a teacher i even my, my alumni magazine from college uh it's always about how well the man is is a partner in this law firm and she's wow. a teacher um <laughs> the, way, the way it's framed it's like oh mm-hmm. and she's a school teacher oh good for her right mm-hmm. um who will probably quit when she has kids right that like that just because of the school that I went to, like the guy has enough money that she could quit when she was. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just, it's not seen as essential. And then all of a sudden now, like uh, they, uh, one would hope that it would lead to people seeing what teachers do. But one thing that I'm seeing Unfortunately, I'm seeing, I'm, well, no, I'm seeing both of these things. I mean, I, maybe it's just the circles that I run in, but mm-hmm. um, I guess that's all the internet now because that's all we have. But uh, there's a group of people who are saying thank you to the essential workers, and medical work, all this is great, right? And then there's some people who include teachers in there because they see that what teachers are doing and all this extra work they're doing. And there's some people who are not including teachers in there because the teachers are not physically out in the field mm-hmm. and so forth. And uh, I don't really understand the second group, <laughs> but uh, like there will always be people who are dismissing the efforts of teachers because, right. the, you know, oh, well they get this many months off a year. It's like, mm, I, don't, I don't really know what to do about that. Um, but it concerns me that there, there is, um, you know what I'm saying? It deeply concerns right. me. There'll always be this contingent of people who think that teaching is just something that people do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't um, argue that at all. No, and I, I think that's part of the pragmatism too is like leaving that space for various viewpoints, but still having the patient and patience to continue and to move forward and to. Um, even continue in hope. And I would say you have to fiercely fight for that hope because it is exhausting um, to what you feel like to give all of yourself. And then you feel like the system is still against you or the end result didn't happen for your student. The next one is, is totally different because um, this is, you're, you're never going to hear more people on a conversation with me. This is with uh, Dr. Rebecca Shapiro um, and her students in Barbados who are just as socially distant as we are. And it's very, what they've learned about language and dialect and what is a language and what is a dialect and their own language and Bajan um, and a lot of things that I had no idea. So most of this time, I, I pretty much let the students talk. And, um, you know, you really should listen to this one. 